Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still on our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 23. In the previous episode, we learned that Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he participated on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. And although the text doesn't explicitly say it um, based on the people's reaction and some of the Hebraic uh, language phrases that we delved into the type of teaching that he was doing uh, on the on that particular Sabbath day was incredible. People people's jaws were on the floor by his wisdom, and how he interpreted the law and the prophets, uh, and he ended it by saying that all of those scriptures that you had heard today are being fulfilled in what you're hearing. Uh, and f- as we went on from there, people in his hometown were starting to question and uh, speculate like isn't this the carpenter's son isn't this the son of you know mary and listing all of his brothers and sisters and taking offense at him which is just crazy how it goes from being astonished at his teaching to taking offense at him now Um, and then we left off uh, by kind of giving a cliffhanger of actually reading matthew 13 58 about why jesus was saying that he could not perform any miracles there because of their unbelief. Uh, one of the more harder verses that we've looked at in the gospel so far, and hopefully we're going to shed some light on that today. Yeah. Yeah, this seemed uh, like too much to try to take on at the end of that last episode, so we'll put it at the beginning. There's no way we could not finish now. <laughs> <laughs> if you think that, you've never listened to our podcast before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should be able to do this. All right. Well, uh, that was a good uh, recap. Are you ready to go? Yeah. Just Let's make sure it. as a listener, you got your show notes as a reference and we're ready to take off on whichever Matthew or Mark version you want to read from, Paul. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to do both because I want to try to compare a little bit between these two. So Matthew, 50, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, 58 says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And then Mark says it differently. Chapter 6, verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So, a couple little things just to note Uh, The obvious one, Matthew says that he didn't do many works, but Mark says that he couldn't do works. Kind of crazy. And then Matthew very specifically and explicitly says he didn't do them because of their unbelief. Mark, I think it's a reasonable interpretation to to get the same meaning, Um, but he Technically, it's a separate sentence where he says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. But either way, uh, I still think the unbelief has to do with not doing the mighty work and all that. But we need to get into that and try to figure out what what exactly is Mark trying to say, because 
saying that Jesus could do no mighty work ought to make at least our eyebrows raise a little bit. What does this mean? What's going on? How could that be so? So before we get there, because I know we're going to get wrapped up in it, I just want to touch a couple other little things. Um, This idea about Jesus marveling, which, I mean, it's just kind of cool showing they've got this continued unbelief in him. And and this is, even though they have seen or heard about his ministry and his miracles among them so far. And this is a real, I mean, it's just kind of funny thinking about Jesus being surprised. But again, we're the ones who are trying to go, hey, you know, there's a real human person in Jesus and 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 we need to pay attention to that. So he's really surprised at their unbelief. This is it's just a neat way to see him. And then one other thing to say before we get to the could do no mighty works part. It's interesting that Mark includes that he went about the villages teaching. Why why is he telling us that? And why teaching? What's going on? Uh we don't know, but you might think that in the context Maybe it's because we can expect that this teaching might be the counter or the the antidote to their unbelief, which is kind of funny because we would usually think, well, do some crazy miracle and then I'll believe. And maybe what's being hinted at for us here is that actually they need better knowledge. They need better understanding to believe. And again, don't know that that's exactly what Mark's trying to say, but it's definitely a, a an interesting way to look at that little bit. So, anything in there weird or crazy, Samuel? We good to go on? Yeah, I'm good if you are. All right, let's do this. So, he could do no mighty works. What are we talking about? All right, so number one, I want to address this in a number of different ways. Some people hearing this, they're like, yeah, whatever, no big deal, I don't care. And other people are going to be, you know, just lost. Oh my gosh, help me understand it. What am I going to do? We're just going to try to get down into the weeds a bit and see what we can come up with. Number one, I have a question. Samuel, do you think that what we're trying to communicate here is that we, each of us individually, have some sort of absolute power within us that we can actually thwart God and his power, his will, what he wants to do? I would hope not, because that would suggest that we somehow are more powerful than God in some capacity. Yeah. And the answer is, of course, no, we don't. That's, and and I mean, I may hurt somebody's feelings, but I'm going to say it anyway. That's just silly. That is silly. However, you do have this language, this lingo. He could do no mighty work. So what do you do with that? And it's not like it's a bad translation. That's, that's pretty much what the Greek says. So, so what do we got? Well, if you were going to think that you had the power to thwart God, well, okay, number one, that's really an arrogant way of thinking about your relationship with God. You're basically saying my unbelief is so powerful or it's too powerful for God to overcome. And I mean, Obviously, the the response to that should be, yeah, right. Now, just as one example, just to kind of 
I don't know, draw some attention, shed some light on this idea of the way it is that sometimes we use language. Samuel, I'd like you to read from 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Sure. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay. Now, I'm going to paraphrase. That just said, if you're born again, you can't sin anymore. Is there anybody <laughs> listening? Think, is there anybody that thinks that that is true? Again, that's silly. And, and not because it's impossible. I would actually be one of the guys that's going, hey, you know what? I actually believe that somewhere in within every single human, there is the ability to stop sinning. And people would think I was crazy for saying it. But I don't read this verse and think that what John actually meant was, yep, everybody who's born again can't sin anymore. That's just crazy talk. Crazy talk. Now, in the same way, could it be that Mark is saying, and he could do no mighty work there? I'm sort of picking on the language a little bit and asking, do we really need to take it explicitly the way it might read on the surface? And I think things like this help us go, okay, no, we don't, but we still, what do we do with it? We still got to wonder what we do with it. And by the way, this whole thing about, you know, people not being able to do things or cannot do things, Samuel, do you ever wonder, is there, are there things that God can't do? Um, well, if God is, well, truth and wisdom, then he's not going to speak anything that's false. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times people would respond immediately, well, no, God can do anything. But then, you know, just give it a second and you go, well, he can't tell lies. He can't be unfaithful. So in everything, right, it's just how are you using that language and what is it that you're going for? So we got to keep that in mind. Now, I'm also going to ask this question, Samuel, why? We've talked about it before. Why are there even any mighty works or miracles or sign? What's the, what's the real point behind those? Uh, it's to demonstrate what the kingdom is going to look like. Yeah, yeah. It's not so much about the mighty display of power. I mean, that's obviously involved, but the point is... Hey, I am the king. We're talking about the kingdom. When you see these things, it's going to help you see and understand what it is that I'm saying is right here in your midst, right? Now, the funny thing is, we've got these people, their familiarity with Jesus and is, you know, like the early years. Um, I mean, they're obstinate enough that they're kind of unwilling, to see him as Messiah. They saw all these mighty works or heard about them, heard the teaching. Initially, they're very, like, they're, they're in. Yep, I'm behind you. I get it. And yet, something about the, the questions in their mind and their, let's just call it their belief, their unbelief, it turns, and now they can't really accept it. They're unwilling somehow. And I'm just going to say, if that's a real thing, it could be that in some sense, Jesus is not acting. He's not doing mighty works. He's not doing those things because 
it's actually going to work in the opposite. Like the expectation is going to get turned on its head. Their unbelief is going to lead them to greater condemnation because they're not accepting these things that are being performed right before their very eyes, right? So, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's important. Why would he be doing the works? Well, it's all about the kingdom. And if it's possible that doing these works could in some way put them further away from the kingdom, well, that's another reason he might not be doing them. Is another way that you could say that just to hopefully give another voice into the, this matter is that with the Jewish people expecting Messiah to come over all of these generations before and leading up to Jesus coming into the picture, um, there were a lot of false messiahs who claimed to yeah. uh, be him, and that, that doesn't mean that they didn't perform miraculous things and they healed people, that kind of thing, but are you, are you kind of saying that there was somewhat of a negative connotation whenever you have Messiah and healings and miracles in the same room together that if Jesus had, if, if he knew that it was going to turn people off to considering him as Messiah, that's why you say it's a form of mercy in him choosing not to because of all the baggage that they're carrying with yeah. like generations of people and them getting their, their hopes up and then it being crushed because they're not actually the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, your example is a, a good and interesting one, and, and I, I guess we could even back up a little more and just go, look, however it is they got to where they were, but if he, and, and he's already demonstrated having some knowledge of people, maybe what they were thinking or what was inside them, etc., if he knew that this was actually going to work against them rather than in their favor, then then, you know, that would be a reason for him to not do it. So, yeah, I'm, I think uh, most definitely what you said. Yeah. So, uh, so here they are. We got Mark saying it can't be done or he could not do it. Uh, I've made the point that, look, it's not as if we have some sort of absolute power. We've uh, addressed maybe a possible alternative, Jesus's motive to do or not to do, that kind of a thing. But I think we need to address, maybe we look at a careful, uh, more careful understanding of how it is that our unbelief could be in some way controlling or affect, uh, affecting, you know, this, this show of power, flow of power, whatever you want to call it. Now, I think in looking at both of these verses, we have to at least acknowledge our belief has an obvious influence here. We can't just pass that off, you know, shove it off to the side like it doesn't matter, but we can take it too far. And here's what I mean. Let's say, for example, uh, someone has some sort of circumstance in their life, it's a big, important thing, and they begin to pray. And they put all of their faith faith and trust and hope, everything in God. And they pray and they pray and they pray, but the answer never comes. The healing doesn't happen or fill in the blank. Uh, Maybe it's a relationship thing or whatever it might be. 
And they walk away from that thinking to themselves, well, it's my fault. I must not have believed enough. Can you see, Samuel, how that would be a path to big fat trouble? Yeah, it could drive someone insane. Yeah, that would be a horrible, horrible thing. So if you read Mark saying he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief, and you're going, man, I prayed for this thing and it didn't come to pass, and oh, I really blew it, it's all my fault. That is going to totally screw up your mind and your relationship with God. Because what it's doing is forgetting that, look, God has his ways. He has his will. He has his plan. And these things, they're sometimes beyond us, beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. Uh, and, and sometimes, I would even say, beyond the span of our life. We may never see and understand what's going on. And then sometimes we get the, the good fortune of hindsight. We can look back and see how these all things work out. All these things work out. But let me say this. Do you remember what Jesus was asking in the garden of Gethsemane, Samuel? He was asking for the cup of suffering that he was about to partake in, endure. He wanted it to pass from him. Yeah. Take this from me. Did God answer that prayer? (laughs) No. (laughs) So is it because Jesus didn't believe enough? It doesn't, no, no. No, of course not. And if it's, if you can look at Jesus's life and say, hey, you know what? It was even possible for him to pray for something and not get the answer he wanted. And you can't blame it on his unbelief. Well, okay, could you give yourself a little bit of a break and recognize that sometimes you may have believed plenty, but God has different plans. That just happens. And Samuel, could you read from Job chapter 2, verse 10? I actually kind of chopped this one up a little bit. It's just a little piece from from the middle of that verse. Yeah. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Yeah. Job understood. He was in the middle of just a, a crazy situation where he didn't actually do anything wrong. He, Satan just asked God if he could mess with him, and God let him. And Job is like, hey, you know what? What am I going to do? Take the good and none of the bad? You can't do that. So we need to look, you know, at our own life, our own circumstance in a similar way. Our unbelief, it has some sort of obvious influence, and yet we can't take it too far. Another good cross-reference that people might know of, um, Isaiah 55 Verses 8 and 9, I know it gets used cliche a lot, but Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah and telling the people, like, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. Um, and and then in verse 9, he talks about just as high as the heavens are from the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. And I, if you take it in that humble, humbling aspect, it's like, yeah, God is transcendent, like, he can see all, like, He's not bound by time or space. So, like, of course, as he's working out his good and perfect plan, that's in Romans 12, too. uh, Like, it's going to feel different than our finite ability to understand that. Exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, It's just, look, in all of this, we're just trying to find what is actually being said 
and trying to be careful to not get too too literal, too non-literal, too weird, whatever. So, yeah, those are good, good references. Yeah. Again, continuing with this idea that, okay, we can't act like our belief has no influence. Uh, We've said, uh, I'm not sure what else to call this, like there's no mechanical hindrance, uh, you know, like in the natural world where, oh, no faith, no miracle. Well, you can't say it quite like that. But I'm going to go back to the woman at the well. You remember Jesus was talking to her about water, brought up living water. And in that, we see this idea that not only was the water flowing to us, it was welling up within us and it was flowing out from us. So there was an outlet. And and in a sense, we were a conduit, if you will, for that living water. And so, uh, there's that, uh, why are you not experiencing a mighty work or a sign or a miracle or an answered prayer or whatever it might be? Well, it could be because of your lack of faith. We can't act like that's not part of the story, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. And so, we can look at that and say, you know what? There are degrees of faith. There really are. Some people listening to this podcast are going to have a faith that makes me look like a beginner. And there will be other people listening to this podcast, and they're going to, they're going to think that, well, man, my faith compared to Paul or you know Samuel, uh, mine is so small. Oh, maybe. But there really are degrees of faith, and because of that, we may, in our lifetime, experience varying results. And we even see this through the Gospels, Jesus talking to his disciples, oh, ye of little faith, or trying to teach them about faith as a mustard seed, or whatever. The point is, it is possible that you may indeed miss out on some good thing in your life due to unbelief. It could happen, but what does that unbelief look like? And this is important because this, and again, it depends on people's experience with the body and all that. This is important. First of all, I know I've kind of switched up the words belief and faith and this, and and the reason is because they're so tied together. In fact, even in the Greek, one of the words that's used, the, the word in this particular verse It just depends on where you're reading. Sometimes it says belief. Sometimes it says faith. It's the same word. So that's the reason I'm kind of mixing them up as well. When we talk about faith, we've made the point, look, it's not just what you think in your head. It is is faith plus faithfulness. Another way to say that would be belief plus trust. Belief plus, you know, walking out the very thing you say you believe. And so, we can walk away with this with kind of a general rule, something that would sound something like, hey, the more faith you have, the more miracles you're going to see, or the less faith that you have, the fewer miracles you're going to see, that kind of thing, right? You, you could say that as a general rule, that would hold true. I would actually say, you know what? That's probably true. And here's what I mean. If you were to go back and read the book of Proverbs, The basic story from the book of Proverbs is 
Hey, if you are living right, you are going to be blessed. And Proverbs is pretty unapologetic about that. That's, I mean, it's not to say you couldn't find an example in there, but basically the story of Proverbs is you live right, you you live blessed. The problem is anybody who's lived in this life knows that I'm not sure that that's always true. And that's probably why we have the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. They act as a counterbalance of sorts. They help us to see that, yeah, you can have a general rule. And we can say that it is generally true. But it's not a formula. It's not a machine. It's, it's just general. And there will always be counterexamples. And so this idea of belief and faith, the thing is that it's not how you feel in the moment or at the moment about a thing. It's not as if it's something that you can muster, right? I'm praying for, you know, someone to be healed and, oh, I'm praying so hard and I'm believing so hard and it's like... I keep trying and trying and trying to believe harder and harder and harder. And if I could just believe enough, it would work. That's not what it looks like. The belief that we're talking about, the faith that we're talking about, it's an ongoing thing. It's a relational thing. If we live as if we are partnering with God to accomplish His will on the earth, to bring the justice and the mercy if our our mode of living is all about him, well, two things. One, okay, we're probably going to see a little more of the mighty works and the signs, etc. But also, when we're living that way, even the question of, well, you know, is it my fault? Is it his fault? How, you know, what's, how does it all work? Whatever. It kind of becomes a lot less important. Even even all the everything just becomes kind of meh. We accept everything that comes from the hand of God, whether good or bad, like Job. So for those who get kind of kind of wrapped up in, well, what about this belief thing and how is it affecting it? You know what? It is a good question. We should ask these questions, and there are things we want to try to know and understand about them, but what is so much more important is Daily walking out your belief with God. And just to say it out loud, we're going to continue through the Gospels. We're going to see stories of other supernatural things, miracles, whatever. And they are going to suggest no prior faith. And yet they still happen. So this is a difficult topic. I don't think that I've brought it down to like, boom, here's your answer. But hopefully, I've given it enough of a framework for you to live in so that you understand it's a real thing. There's an aspect where we do play a role sometimes in that interaction, but it's certainly not the end of the story, right? God is still involved no matter how you look at it. So whatever our interpretation, we just got to leave room for whatever... Whatever the relationship between our belief and what God is willing to do or 
capable of doing, however you want to phrase it. We just got to let it make sense with regard to the whole story, all of the Gospels. And this, this little verse here is just one little piece. Sometimes, maybe our unbelief can cause us to miss out on a particular blessing, or etc. But don't, don't live with this weird fear that somehow we are thwarting God through our unbelief. He's going to do what he wants to do hopefully with you, and if not, he can do what he wants anyway. Yeah, I, I think from me hearing you say all those things, I feel like that you're, a message that you're trying to evoke is that uh, human beings in their life, their journey of faith, it's not a static uh, journey. It's a very dynamic journey. And oh, that, yeah. Um, when you mention the whole different degrees of faith, I think a lot of that is based on the particular burdens of life that, for whatever mysterious reason, God has allowed those challenges to come into your life that, you know, weigh against a life of faith. And, you know, some people have harder weights that they're carrying than others yeah. that affect, you know, how their relationship with God is and their, and their faith journey and everything. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. Like it's an opportunity right. for you to be faithful in whatever weight God has placed on your life. But um, like I know, for example, that story of that father who I'm, I think it's this story where I think it's his child that is sick and he's Jesus asked him, do you believe? And like you can get this inward turmoil that he's feeling when he says like, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Like yeah. uh, that that's a really good example of a dynamic process in uh, a life of faith. Yeah. Um, and then another thing that I wanted to just say that came out of response of all the things that you said is that um, with this dynamic approach to faith is that uh, God truly is the one who can see the heart of man. Uh, yes. And like there's so many verses I could mention. I just did a quick search. I'll just do this one in First Samuel Chapter 16, verse 7, when God is talking to Samuel about choosing David to be the heir, and uh, he's like, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that that is a form of comfort rather than it is like something that's supposed to induce fear, because like God knows the things that you're good at in your life and God knows the things that you struggle with and that like there's a mercy in that with how like you know he comes alongside you with where you're at in your faith and like yeah. gives you opportunity each day you're given life to you know live faithfully for him yeah 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 this was I mean it's so funny it's such a little tiny little section of scripture and we've spent so much time on it but it's we're trying to trying to counter a couple of things that in my experience I see as being very prevalent in the church. We don't want to see people paralyzed by their their own I don't know if I have enough faith, I don't know if I'm believing, ah, I'm messing it all up. And and other people where it's like they don't even recognize, look, this idea of living out your faith and building up your faith, it's so important. Don't ignore that piece. 
So both sides are are really important and and something about these verses leads us to you know trying to figure that out and it's just something we all need to pursue. So it's good. All right. So so back to like the actual scriptural story. You know, they just mention, hey, he didn't do a lot of works because of unbelief, you know, whatever, healed a couple people. And then as it continues, at least from Luke's perspective, he has an extra little something to say to them. And so I'm going to read a fairly large section here, and we'll talk about that. So this is in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. He says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I love that. (laughs) Crazy story. You don't expect to see, right? Yeah. So Luke's adding more to the story. And now let's, let's just kind of, let's get the, the, the basic idea here. He tells of two prophets who at certain times in their lives did no miracles in Israel, but he did. They did do miracles. Instead, for or among Gentiles. That's the basic thing that, that Luke is relating here. This is what Jesus is telling them. So these stories are basically saying, hey, God found more faith or belief among the Gentiles than he did among his own people. So he gave them aid and let you suffer. Now, the obvious inference is that Jesus is finding no faith or belief among them, and so he's going to let them suffer, and he's going to go to someone else, right? So, as the text tells us, thems was fighting words. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So, uh, and and I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, because Jesus is relating himself to these prophets, the Messiah is supposed to be, in some sense prophet and priest and king. And in this little section right here, we see that Jesus is, you know, kind of eagerly identifying himself with that prophetic role. It's kind of cool. But anyway, I just have to address this. This is very popular little section of scripture for people who want to promote replacement theology or supersessionism. And I'm just going to say, we do not see that here at all. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, Jesus isn't rejecting Jews and taking Gentiles in their place. 
Jesus is rejecting Jews in his hometown, and he's going on to Jews in other towns around. Do you see the difference there? Yeah. Jesus is moving on to other, more receptive Jews. And just to put this in context, Samuel, let's look at some things that that happen a little bit later in our story. Uh, Why don't you read from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Yeah. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah. So when he sends out the disciples, he's telling them, Hey, don't go see Gentiles or Samaritans. You keep it right here in Israel. How about another one? Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. Read that one, Samuel. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah. Now, just for clarity, those are Jesus's words. If you got one of those Bibles, that's in red. Jesus is saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Huh. That's kind of crazy. Doesn't really fit with replacement theology. And the reason that we see some of these stories and the reason that we keep talking about Gentiles, you've got to understand, Gentiles ultimately are going to be offered equal inclusion along with the Jews, not in place of. And sometimes a lot of these stories are included so that we can see how that all works, but it can also give us maybe kind of a disproportionate view. We think that Jesus is somehow involved with the Gentiles more than he is. So I'm just saying this replacement theology thing, supersessionism, it's really misapplied here. So that's all we're going to say about that. Back to the people. Samuel, they were mad. (laughs) Very Really, really mad. And now think about what he had done. Jesus was comparing himself to great prophets of the past, Elijah and Elisha. And he was comparing the people that he was talking to, he's comparing them to the idolatrous generation of Ahab and Jezebel. This is bad. They don't like that. So the story, now here's the part where it gets a little bit weird. (laughs) So the story makes it sound like they wanted to kill him. But Samuel... There aren't even any cliffs in this area. Hmm. This is like a rolly hill kind of a place. And, uh, okay, people might say, might say, hey, Paul, what do you know? You weren't there 2,000 years ago. Well, you're right. But there <laughs> were people there 2,000 years ago. And we do have some information. I can't go with the picture it didn't happen kind of thing. But <laughs> we know that in and around Nazareth, there really were just hills and 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 they weren't even great hills and and there's another thing the greek underneath these words what, what's the word here but passing through there uh, no yeah so they could throw him down the cliff that that word throw him in the greek okay in its simplest meaning like the the, the root if you will it just means to throw down But to be fair, when it is used, when it's commonly used, it often does imply a cliff. 
So the fact that our English translation has put it in there, you can't blame them too much, but it's not like it absolutely must be a cliff. It could, it could simply mean to throw down. And so maybe the English translation isn't really helping us there. Another point about that is if these people had, in fact, killed him, they would have been facing punishment from the the Romans, which, okay, most likely would have been death. And we can't underestimate that. Usurping Rome's authority in matters of law resulted in swift, hard punishment. So, I mean, you've got to ask, did the consequences of their actions just disappear from their view? Were they blinded by rage? Did they, you know, did they really just want to shut him up so bad that they didn't care about the cost? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it somehow got exaggerated a little bit, either in the, the original text or the translation or whatever. It may be better for us to understand this as, look, they were mad, and they were forcibly booting this guy out of town. And just as a reminder, he'd lived there most of his life. He had a family there. He had taught in the synagogue repeatedly, I'm sure, over the the 30 plus years of his life. And they were mad enough to forcibly kick this guy out of town, push him down a hill, so to speak. So, if we didn't have throw him off a cliff in the first place, it actually still would have seemed pretty dramatic. They're kicking this guy, their hometown boy, they're kicking him out of town. So, I don't know. Take that for what you will. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Here's another one. So, the last little thing, passing through their midst, he went away. You would be surprised, Samuel, how many commentaries just outright deny that this phrase, passing through their midst, was anything kind of special, supernatural, miraculous, or whatever. They don't even allow for the text to intend it to be taken that way. They are, nope, nothing miraculous here. Hmm. And so... I guess, you know, they're smart people. We probably should at least leave that door open and go, well, okay, maybe it doesn't. I mean, maybe maybe it's just kind of the way I read it or whatever, but okay, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with that. But I just think the fact that it got included, the way that it's stated, it just is weird and a little bit remarkable. So for me, I'm just going to confess I hear everything that the scholars are saying, but I still lean a little bit more toward the miraculous. Here's a couple things to to ponder. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Even in this, we may see yet another act of mercy. The fact that Jesus kind of slips away or passes through their midst, whatever you want to call it, he's protecting them from doing something that may actually result in a great personal cost to themselves. And so I always, I I love, you know, when you can kind of turn things around a little bit and see God, Jesus, whoever, just continually acting in mercy. And then this one, I don't know if it really counts or not, but let's just think about this for a second. If Jesus really did kind of pass through their midst and it's something supernaturally miraculous, whatever, 
This is also a great irony because they want to kill him. And, and, and this is all related to, or at least it includes this idea of him not being able to do miracles because of their unbelief. And so they, he can't do miracles because of their unbelief, and yet he escapes by doing a miracle. And I don't know. Maybe it's just me. There's something pleasing about that. Yeah, that's a <laughs> God has a sense of humor type of example. Exactly, exactly. Now, to just sort of bolster the idea that, well, maybe it could be something, you know, miraculous. Samuel, why don't you read John chapter 8, verse 59 for me? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Yeah. In the temple, presumably lots of people around, they're picking up rocks, and then he hid himself? I mean, is he like... Nin-Jesus? See some sort of, you know, stealthy ninja? He can, you know, what? I, I don't know. It seems like something weird's happening there, too. How about John chapter 10, verse 39? Samuel, read that. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Yeah. I, and, and again, <laughs> I mean, I know we live in, you know, 2021. We see movies and, you know, people do these crazy things. Uh Crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I, how else are we supposed to take it? it? It seems that there's something a little out of the ordinary happened there. Something that's not natural. So that's why I go supernatural, right? So I don't know. Maybe it's not convincing to you. And it doesn't really matter if it is or it isn't. It could be that it's miraculous or that it's not. It doesn't matter. But I don't know. I just think there's something there. And that's the way I read it when I see it. Yeah, regardless, it's... It's interesting. Yeah. So, now, now, um, this, I don't know. It may seem a little out of place. I'm not sure. But the, the, the text, or at least the way we're organizing the text, moves to John, chapter 4, verse 45. And we're going to walk through this one fairly quickly. It's a, it's a story that's very similar to what you were alluding to before, but it's, it's still a different one. So, in John, chapter 4, verse 45, it says this. So when he came to Galilee, that would be Jesus, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, a couple of quick points. Some people think that this little section of John should have come before our little Nazareth story. I'm putting it after. Um, it are good arguments both ways. Just, you know, kind of go with me. Uh, it's it's not going to like affect anyone's salvation or anything, so don't worry about that. And also, this story should not be confused with a similar story that's over in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Some try to make them the same story, but there are a number of differences, and I think important differences that we should consider. And so, I'm presenting them, we're presenting them here as two different stories. Also, uh, in John's story, uh, remember he's returning 
to the Galilee from Samaria. And there were many there who had witnessed his miracles in Jerusalem, so before he went to Samaria, uh, Samaria right? And, and they were very welcoming. But remember the reason that he left was because he was trying to be a little bit less uh, noticeable, uh, keep a lower profile, go a little un- incognito. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe this wasn't the greatest idea because everybody here recognizes him. Um, but at least here in John's story, he's skipping over the Nazareth bit. He's got Jesus back in Cana where he did the wine miracle at the wedding. And then he introduces this official that's at Capernaum. Now, what's maybe important about this is there's Capernaum is about 20 miles away from Cana. So this official, and uh, you know what? I should tell you more about him. Even the text alludes to this underneath, but, but uh, historically the, the sort of the, the, the more popular understanding is that he was a royal official. And some even go so far as to think he may have actually been a member of Herod's family. So this guy, he's not just a regular old governmental kind of dude. He's a very important guy. He may be an official under Herod Antipas, who was, you know, ruling over Galilee here at the time. We're not sure. We don't know who he is, but... We walk away with the understanding he's important, politically, governmentally, whatever you want to call it. But this official hears that Jesus is nearby, 20 miles, and he travels those 20 miles to get to Jesus. He's, he wants him to come to his home. Heal my dying son. And I don't want to say this to ring my own bell or anything, but I've done lots of hiking before where I've done 20 miles in one day. And that is no small feat whatsoever. Uh, You have to be on your horse to walk 20 miles a day, especially somewhere like the Middle East where conditions are probably less than favorable. Yeah, it's a big deal. And even if it did take a couple days or whatever, I mean, it's a lot of dedication. But his son is dying. So, uh, you know, the dude's going to go. He's got to get there. Uh, uh, So we get to verse 48. And, and it says this, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, that doesn't seem very nice. No. Well, here's the thing, though. Uh, the text, it's doing two very interesting things here. Number one, it's saying that Jesus spoke to him. That is the royal official, the one who has traveled the 20 miles. But the second thing is, when he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, the you is plural both times. So who's Jesus talking to? Is he, is he really just talking to the official? Okay, that seems a little weird. Did the official have, you know, maybe some, a little bit of an entourage with him, you know, traveled with, with a small group? Don't know. Uh, are there Jews around? Well, I mean, that certainly seems possible. It doesn't say it explicitly, but oh, probably the text just doesn't mention anyone else. So it's really weird. Jesus says to him, and then he's talking to a plural you. Hmm. So even though we don't know that anyone else in there, at least in terms of storytelling, kind of seems like a little bit of a setup. John is trying to highlight this idea that there are those who needs signs and wonders to believe. And then I guess you could also say maybe there are those who do not need that. 
And you can easily imagine a crowd seeking a sign because we've already seen it in stories and we're going to see it in a whole bunch more. So you can imagine that if there was a crowd, if there were others standing around, you can imagine them wanting to see the sign. But this official, we're going to see it. He just wants his son healed, which again, it takes you back to who was Jesus talking to? But maybe we take away just a a little bit of a moral from this story. Not needing to see that kind of evidence would actually be preferred. And in some sense, you could say it's actually of the utmost importance. And the reason I say that is because Jesus was only here for a very, very short time. We can look at the last 2,000 years as evidence that, yeah, we shouldn't need to see the signs and wonders right before our very eyes to believe. Even the stories of them alone and, and et cetera should be enough. So we got that. Yeah. But let's keep going. This story, this story's good. Uh, verse 49, the official says to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So whether you think that Jesus was talking to the official or to the crowd, you know, busting their chops about needing to see a sign, uh, whether the official took it that way or not, he was unmoved. He made his request. Jesus says what he says. And this guy just makes his request a second time. Please just come down. And then we see that in some way, Jesus is moved by this. And we're going to see, uh, we can understand Jesus is healing the boy at that moment and from a distance. It'll be clearer as we go. He told the official his son would live. And that was enough for the official. He believed Jesus's words and went back home. Now, in the context of where we just came from, did the official believe enough that Jesus did it? Or did he believe because Jesus said it? He trusted he would do it? Or I mean, the whole thing, it's like, well, what's happening first and second? It, that also becomes a little bit confusing. And then if we could just, again, sort of stepping away from the the specific story to the bigger picture, Notice how a lot of this storytelling isn't very favorable toward the Jews. In Samaria, they believed his words alone. It didn't say anything about signs and wonders. This royal official, he hasn't seen anything. He's obviously heard some things. That's why he came. But he didn't see anything, and yet he believes. And in the other stories that we've heard, the Jews have consistently sought signs whether it was in Judea or in Nazareth or whatever, right? And so that's also very interesting to notice. We aren't casting the Jews aside, but we're showing, wow, the, the very people who should have been on board with this, you know, they're the ones who are, are not joining in. Yeah. All right. So what's happening with this guy? Get to verse 51. He says this. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Wow. So the story tells us how the official finds out that the healing did in fact occur and that it happened exactly when Jesus had spoken it. But then it says that he himself believed. Samuel, is this a glitch in the matrix? Sure seems like, as we've already heard this before. Yeah, he already said that he believed. So is John telling us this because his belief is now different in some way? Is it, I don't know, more or deeper or better? I don't know what the word. All I can say is, I think so. He's also telling us that his whole household believed. And again, remember, this is a royal official. This is a really big deal for him. But it's not just him, it's his whole household. And maybe we can kind of look at it and say, well, the first believed was, you know, it, maybe it's kind of like trust with regards to Jesus's words. He'd heard about this guy. The guy said this was the thing. And so he just trusted it. The second time, once he knows that it's actually come to pass, maybe it's something more like how we would say believed in him you know, accepting that he was indeed from God, maybe even that he was this Jewish Messiah. And I actually have a third potential interpretation of this verse too, if you want me to pitch it. Lay it on us. So personally, I think that faith and faithfulness is not a one singular time act, and we have multiple different opportunities through our yes. entire lives to believe Yeah, uh, when God presents something in our way to choose to be a part of his plan and his story. And so in this particular situation, the official had an opportunity first when Jesus said, go, your son will be healed. Yep. And then he had another opportunity when he was at home to believe that it happened at the time that Jesus said it. Yeah. So it just shows that there's so many opportunities to believe it. It's not just a one-time thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you could look at that and you could say, so really, our belief and our faith, it's progressive. Definitely. And and I guess we could also allow for the negative. It could be regressive. You don't want to be that guy. <laughs> no, sir. Faith is it's something that we are working on continually in this life. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. He finishes up with this last little bit. Remember, John is the one that said that the wine was the first sign that Jesus had done, right? Well, here, John is stating that this is now the second sign. And we've heard talk of lots of other miracles or works or whatever, but John is saying that this is the second sign. That's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. The first sign was the wine right here in Cana. And remember, we talked about how that speaks of the abundance of the kingdom. Now, this second sign, also done in Cana. Now, okay, technically, the actual manifestation occurred in Capernaum, 20 miles away, right? But this sign is healing. And this also speaks of the kingdom. In the kingdom, there will be healing and long life or full life, however you want to say that, uh, in the kingdom. And, and of course, that leads to the eternal life of the world to come. 
So the first sign is about abundance. The second sign about healing. I think that's kind of interesting, especially since John is is specifically calling these two out. But here we are. We get to the end of this bit. And, and in a way, if you've been paying attention, I don't know. I think it kind of, it could put us in a bit of a pickle if we let it. After hearing about Nazareth, we might be wondering if it's, is it faith or belief that actually produces miracles? But then after hearing the end of the story of the royal official, uh, you may have the opposite question. Is it, is it the miracles that actually produce the faith? Now, you're going to love this one, Samuel. I got the answer for you. It's both. And it's neither. That's a very Jewish answer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. See, the, the, the real thing is it's not a formula. It's not some kind of mechanism like when you turn on a light switch, the light comes on. When you turn it off, it goes off. It's just not like that. The point of these stories isn't to help you get a super clear definition of exactly how all things work. It's not for you to have this complete understanding of the relationship between belief or faith and miracles. The point of the stories is that you should believe. You're being called to believe. John, John says it good at the end of his gospel. Samuel, maybe you can look at this one. John chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. Kind of long, but go for it. Oh, by the way, let me say this real quick. Jesus is talking to Thomas, doubting Thomas. So go ahead, Samuel. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Yes. And I'm just going to say it one more time. The point isn't so that you get some sort of clear definition or deep understanding. The point of the stories is to bring you to that place of believing, that place of faith. So there you go. That's powerful. It is. So powerful. I think that we should stop for today. (laughs) Well, there couldn't be a better place because this is the end of my notes. (laughs) Okie dokie. Before I do my little outro, like I always do for these episodes, we would just like to offer an invitation to you for our listeners to help this podcast grow. And one of the ways that you can best do that is actually going on your podcast app and leaving a rating and a review about how you enjoy or not enjoy this podcast. Unfortunately, we live in a digital age where a lot of things are ruled by algorithms, and a lot of podcasts show up on people's suggested feed based on the number of reviews and ratings it gets. So if you found this podcast helpful in any way, and it's blessed your life, uh, we would really encourage you to just give us a you know three, four, five stars if you enjoy it, and send us a comment on that review portion, just saying how... It's affected your life and helped you grow in in your faith. So with that, thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. Finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.